All right, lecture number two, let's get started. spooky music fades out, I will tell you the title of today's podcast lecture. Today's title is The Unconscious Exists and The Return of the Repressed, or Why People Make the Same Mistake Again and Again. But before I get into either of those two ideas, The Unconscious Exists or The Return of the Repressed, I would like to start off with a very short review, review. of what was covered on the previous podcast lecture, lecture number one. In that podcast lecture, I introduced the psychoanalytic concept of the unconscious, which I said is the primary, the fundamental, the load-bearing concept within all of the different psychoanalytic theories that we're going to be studying in this class. In addition to that, I also described the unconscious as a part of you that has a mind and desires of its own. And uh, I tried to make it at least somewhat clear that very often your unconscious mind, your unconscious desires are opposed to what it is that you consciously desire. So with that quick review out of the way, what I want to do is add just a few more ideas to what it was that I talked about in the previous podcast lecture. I want to say a little bit more about what the unconscious is. I want to try to describe it in greater detail than I did in that first podcast lecture. The first thing that I want to add to what I've already said is something that was first articulated by the somewhat famous, uh, very famous if you're in psychoanalysis, but maybe only somewhat famous if you're outside of it, psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan said, Lacan made a claim about the unconscious, and his claim was that the unconscious doesn't exist, it exists. So if you were to read that on a page, if you were to take the um, thing that Lacan said and see it rendered as text, you would see it would say, the unconscious does not exist, and exist would be spelled E-X-I-S-T, it exists, and that would be spelled E-X-S-I-S-T-S, right? So the idea there is that there are some things that exist, right? Like right now, I'm sitting at a desk. There's a microphone in front of me. That microphone, it exists. It's a real thing with materiality. I can grab it with my hand. Um, I can bump my face into it. Um, I could uh, use it to hit something if I wanted to. It, it's a material substance. It, it literally exists. There's a lot of other things in the room that I'm in right now, which also exist. Uh, the air in the room exists. We could, uh, you know, right now there's actually some wildfires going on in a different part of the country. And the smoke from those wildfires is drifting all over the place, all over the country because of the, the jet stream kind of pulling it through the atmosphere. 
And so right now people are using these different kinds of tools to kind of like measure the air quality. Uh, when they use those tools, they're, they're using technology and that technology is kind of like scanning the air, looking for particles, these particles of, you know, soot or, or ash or something that actually exists in, in the air. The air actually exists. My body is something that exists. It has a physical form. It has a material form. Uh, and I could go on, but I'm sure you get the point. There are things that literally exist. You can see them. You can touch them. You can taste them. You can smell them. You can apprehend them with your different senses because they exist in some kind of material form in the real world. However, the, the claim that Lacan is making here with the statement, the unconscious doesn't exist, it exists, is that there are also other things that we experience, but they lack a material form. They're not things that we can see, smell, taste, hear, or touch. An idea would be one example of something that exists. You know, if you have an idea, that idea like does not exist in the material world, not the same way that like a book does, right? Um, it, it exists or it exists. It doesn't exist, right? It's kind of hard to say this when you can't see the words spelled out. I'm doing my best here. So I hope that that's working for you. Uh, dreams are another example of things that exist. When you have a dream, the dream, I mean, lots of things might occur in the dream, but they don't actually occur in what we'd call our real existence, right? They, they're, they happened, but they didn't really happen. So they're, they're kind of this weird thing. They, they, how do you classify them? Lacan's way of classifying them was to say that they exist as opposed to exist. And of course, the unconscious is a third example of something in this category of things that exist as opposed to exist. I think that what Lacan might be getting at with this idea is that when things exist, though they lack a material form that we could quantify or measure in some way, they do actually have an effect on us. You know, uh, you can't quantify a dream. You don't know how much a dream weighs. You don't know how big it is, how many inches tall it was. Be that as it may, a dream might actually affect the way that a person goes about kind of like doing things when they wake up, right? So if they had a, a bad dream, we'll say, uh, involving somebody who they love and care for, they, upon waking, they may attempt to contact that person and, you know, say like, oh, I had this, this crazy dream, right? So the, the dream that didn't have any material form still actually, in the example I just gave anyways, influenced the way that the person who does have material form, the way that they went about living and, and behaving in their day-to-day life. So the idea here is that even though things like ideas and dreams and the unconscious can't be directly observed by us, we can infer their existence by observing the effects that these immaterial things have on our bodies, on our behaviors, on things that we actually can see, on things that we actually can witness, right? So uh, we all do this all the time without maybe even realizing it, right? So I'll give you another example of this. A mood is something that I would argue has existence, not existence, right? Your mood doesn't 
exist the way that um, my phone that I can hold up in front of the microphone. You can't see me doing that, but I am doing that. My phone exists. My mood exists. Now, if you've ever uh, interacted with somebody and you've gotten the impression that they were maybe in a bad mood, you didn't see their mood, right? You, you didn't taste it. You didn't smell it. What you did is you saw how the person was conducting themselves, how they were talking or how they weren't talking or how they were behaving. Uh, maybe it was a look they gave. You saw that. That was a thing that exists. That was a material thing that you could witness. But based on what you saw or what you heard or whatever, you were able to infer that there was this mood that this person was experiencing. And maybe you asked them about it. Maybe you were like, hey, are you okay? Uh, so anytime you've ever done something like that, you have inferred something that exists by witnessing things that exist. And we do this, like I said, all of the time. It's kind of interesting. moment, I think, to sort of try to focus in on something, to try to focus in not on, on moods and ideas and dreams, but on the unconscious itself, the unconscious that exists and the way that we might be able to kind of infer the existence of the unconscious through the things that we can actually witness. Uh, keeping with the spooky tone that I tried to start this podcast lecture with, with my spooky music and stuff, I'm going to try to to make a bit of a comparison here. And that comparison is that the unconscious that exists is kind of like a ghost. A ghost is an interesting thing to me, right? It's a, a thing that uh, if you ever watch, you know, uh, a horror movie that has a ghost in it, or if you've ever read a book where a ghost is, I don't know, a character or a thing in, in the book, what you might notice is that the ghost is something that can't interact with the physical world a lot of times, right? The ghost walks through physical walls. The ghost kind of floats around. It, it can't, you know, touch things in the physical world. It doesn't have that ability because it doesn't exist the way that, you know, living people exist. The ghost is this thing, though, that even though it can't, like, directly interact with the physical world, it has this kind of maybe sort of kind of ability to influence the physical world, right? The ghost will haunt different places or different people. And when the ghost is haunting a place or a person, it kind of can make some things happen, but it's, it's like, and the things that the ghost does a lot of times kind of creep people out or whatever. And, uh, the person will be like, Oh, wow, that thing happened. And, and they're like, maybe they're creeped out by it, but they're like, Oh no, that's, that was nothing. That was just like the wind making, making that, that thing happen. Uh, and, and I think that in, in my head anyways, this is a decent way, a decent metaphor for understanding the way that the unconscious actually kind of fun, which exists, the way that this unconscious that exists functions in our kind of day-to-day -day lives and sort of makes its presence known. It does, it's a lot of times when the unconscious, I guess, does something in our lives, my claim would be that. It, something happens, it's kind of weird, sort of, it, it doesn't fit, it, it seems off, 
And a lot of times our first impulse is to just kind of explain it away, to be like, oh, that was nothing. That was just a, a, a weird happenstance, nothing to see there. And we, we sort of like forget about it and move on. But the unconscious will keep on haunting us the way that a ghost keeps on haunting us. Uh, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is that in the last podcast lecture, I also made the claim that the unconscious is... you could almost think of the unconscious as this other kind of place. And it's this other kind of place where the desires that we have, but we don't know that we have them, where they reside. And it is those unconscious desires, the things that we want, but we don't know that we want them. Those are the things that take this ghostly form that haunt our lives and that kind of uh, insert themselves in weird kind of strange, oh, interesting, sometimes creepy sometimes inconvenient ways in our, our actual lives. And if you've ever seen uh, like a, a ghosty movie, a, a story about ghosts, a lot of times what happens is the ghost is haunting, you know, some place or somebody uh, because they want something to be known. They, they want the living in the story to know something and they can't tell them directly. So we're trying to tell them in this weird kind of ghosty way. And usually in the story, what will happen is, is uh, if the living people are able to understand what it is that the ghost is attempting to communicate to them at that point the ghost can be like yay they got it i can move on i i can go rest in peace or whatever and then the ghost kind of goes on to i guess whatever wherever ghosts go when they're not ghosts anymore but that doesn't happen unless the living people actually understand what it is that the ghost is trying to tell them unless they're able to make sense of what the haunting kinds of things and stuff that the ghost is doing what why the ghost is doing those things if the living people can do that the ghost goes away if they can't do that then the ghost continues to haunt them which is what's going to bring me into the next point that i want to make in this podcast lecture which is that not only does the unconscious exist ex-sists the unconscious also insists say that the unconscious insists. So when we have an unconscious desire, what that means is there's something that we want and we don't know that we want it. The reason that we don't know that we want it is because if we did know that we wanted it, we would have to do something with that desire. And that is not something that we are always prepared to do. The reason that we're not always prepared to do it is that If we acknowledge a desire and we try to do something with it, if it's a certain kind of desire, we're not going to be able to think of ourselves the way that we want to. Now, all this is kind of abstract and and whatnot, so I'm going to try to make it a bit more concrete for you by giving you a real example here. What I want you to imagine is somebody who has a kid, 
right? They wanted to be a parent. They do all the things you need to do to become a parent. They become a parent. Yay. They have a kid. And, you know, they, it's nice at first, right? Being a parent. Yay. It's, it's awesome. But being a parent is hard. It involves totally changing your life. I mean, you, you don't get to do a lot of things that you used to be able to do. You're, um, you lose sleep. It's hard. And at a certain point, the person in this uh, thing that I'm describing, the situation that I'm describing, they might have a desire to like not be a parent anymore. They don't want it. And that desire can become repressed. When it becomes repressed, what happens effectively is there's this thing that happens in your psyche where that desire is grabbed. You know, this, the, the sort of, um, version of your, the, the, your, your inner police force, I guess you might call it, grabs the desire that's problematic and they, they, they throw it in a van and they drive the van to the airport and they put the, they take the desire out of the van they put the desire in this plane and they, they fly the desire to Antarctica and then the desire gets put in this place which is way down under the ice and, and all that. So now the desire is effectively gone, but it hasn't been uh, killed. It hasn't been destroyed. It's like gone, but still alive. That's maybe one way you could think about repression. And all this happens outside of our conscious awareness. Like if you find yourself actively thinking that you want to repress a desire, that's not repression. That's trying to not think something. That's a different process. Repression is something that happens and you don't know that it's happened. Your mind kind of does it and you don't know that your mind has done it. That's what makes it repression. If you, if for something to be unconscious, it has to be out of your awareness. If it's within your awareness, it's not unconscious. So when this happens, when, when a desire is put into repression, it's still there. This is what I was talking about in the last section of the podcast. It becomes a ghost in a way. And that ghost haunts or insists that we recognize that we have this desire if we're able to recognize that we have the desire, if we're able to, in a way, articulate to ourselves what our desire is, what tends to happen is that the desire moves out of the unconscious and into our consciousness. And when that happens, we can think about it. We can, in a sense, reason with it. We can understand it more. And we can you know, decide what we want to do with that desire. But before that happens before the desire kind of migrates from the unconscious into the conscious, it, it's able to do some pretty mischievous stuff. So in the example that I just gave, the unconscious desire might manifest itself by the person snapping at their kid, right? Their kid is doing a thing that like the kid is teething, we'll say. So the kid's in pain and, and crying and, you know, making all sorts of, uh, in, in making life inconvenient. And the person just like, yells at the kid for something which the kid has zero control over, right? And and maybe they even do it in, in front of people and people are like, oh my gosh, that parent just yelled at that, that kid in a pretty intense way. Like, that's that's not cool. That's not right. The person, uh, you know, in an extreme situation might even like smack the kid. And if and then the kid has a mark and then DCFS gets called and, and guess what? It turns out there's an investigation and DCFS removes the child from the home. And look at that, the person's no longer a parent. And that's probably not going to make them happy, right? But it is going to be one of the ways that this repressed desire might assert itself in, in the person's life.
So up until now, I've been talking about repressed desires. I've been really focusing on desires. And I do think that it's really important to understand repression and to kind of link that concept to the concept of desires, because I think that desires are probably the most common thing that get repressed. Be that as it may, I think it's also really important to make something clear, which is that Freud didn't only talk about desires being repressed. He talked about other things that get repressed too. Now, generally speaking, a lot of the things that Freud described that end up becoming repressed are traumatic instances in our lives. We're living, something happens to us, or maybe it doesn't happen to us, but it happens to somebody who we care about and we witness it happening. Something like that occurs. And when we, we are traumatized or we witness a trauma, it freaks us out. And Freud said that it freaks us out. When, when there's a traumatic thing that happens, one of the things that is, makes it so hard is that it doesn't make sense. Trauma doesn't make sense. When you're at the, at the wrong place at the wrong time and something traumatic happens to you or somebody who you love and care about, same thing, they're at the wrong place at the wrong time and something traumatic happens to them and you happen to see it occur, uh, when those sorts of things happen, they produce a lot of questions that just don't have answers. Questions like, why did this happen to me? What would have happened if I would have left five minutes earlier? Um, why did, if, if you were victimized, why did the person who victimized you do what they did? Uh, sometimes we'll have things happen in our society, uh, like a mass shooting or something like that. And when there's a mass shooting, usually very quickly, what happens is there's a lot of questions that get generated. What was the motive? Why did this person do it? Um, what is it that they were trying to accomplish? Uh, where did they get the gun? There, there's all sorts of questions that, that go with these things. And a lot of times the questions don't have answers, especially if somebody is, if say there's somebody who does a mass shooting and then at the end of the mass shooting, they take their own life or they're shot and killed by somebody else. Something like that happens a lot of the questions are just not going to be answered. Why did this person do it? Don't know. Um, if when somebody decides to commit suicide, that the people who love the person who committed suicide, their, their death is a trauma. And sometimes, yes, there's a note or something that's been left behind. But even in those cases, there's usually a lot of questions that the note doesn't answer. Uh, you know, questions like, why did I not see this coming? Questions like, what could I have done to stop this person from committing suicide from ending their life, that sort of thing. And all of these things could be described as traumatic. Traumatic things are things that we don't understand. They're things that we can't make sense of. And Freud said that when we encounter a trauma, whether it's an event that happened to us or somebody else, or whether it's a traumatic desire, a desire that we don't understand, a desire that like, we're like, why, why do I want that? That repression kicks in and that when repression kicks in, at least initially, it kicks in to take that traumatic desire or that traumatic thing, whatever it is, and to put it someplace where we will forget about it, to put it someplace where it won't be in our face, kind of, you know, um, freaking us out so badly. The reason I say that to you is that this is a super important point, so I hope I can make it and make it well. When repression occurs, it starts off as a defensive thing. It is a way in which our mind attempts to defend us from something that is traumatic, something that is hard, something 
that we can't understand or make sense of. So repression always, always, always starts out as a solution to a problem, the problem of trauma, some kind of trauma. But, and this is one of the things that Freud articulates and he articulates it so well, um, even though repression starts out as a solution to a problem, it turns into a problem later on. The, the fact that this thing is repressed doesn't stay a solution to a problem. It becomes another kind of problem. And Freud called that problem the return of the repressed. That is what I am describing as a ghost that is haunting you or haunting us or whatever. When there is something that is repressed, it is not dealt with. It is not thought about. It is an emotion that needs to be felt that hasn't been felt. It is a question that we want to ponder, but we're not even asking the question because we don't, we don't know about it. Freud's initial claim when he started to practice psychoanalysis was um, that if you can help people by listening to them talk, just like you have somebody come and see you, you tell them, hey, start talking, um, tell me whatever you're thinking, try not to filter your thoughts too much, I'll listen very carefully to what you say and I'll, I'll tell you what I hear in, in what you're saying. And as he listened to people, he would start to try to suss out these different kinds of um, repressed things and then try to describe those repressed things to the person. Kind of, uh, Freud actually used this, this, um, pardon me, this metaphor of being an archaeologist and kind of slowly digging into a person's psyche and bringing up these bits of repressed stuff and putting it back together into an artifact that you could show the person so that they could understand something about themselves. That's the way that he originally talked about it. So if you get this, you're in pretty good shape here, right? So let, let me do a quick rundown here of the things that I want you to understand. One, I want you to understand that things get repressed because they're traumatic. Two, repression always starts out as something which is designed to keep us safe from something traumatic. It starts out not as a problem, but as a solution to a problem. Three, even though it starts out as a solution to a problem, repression, given enough time, eventually becomes a problem because four, repressed things return into our lives in the form of ghosts that haunt us. And until we're able to listen to what those ghosts are trying to tell us, until we're able to think about whatever it is that the ghost is trying to bring us, until we are able to work through whatever traumatic thing traumatized us, it will continue to exist in some way and it will continue to mess with our lives in some way. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast lecture uh, with some good parting words I can give you. Let me think here. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Make glorious mistakes. Take care. Thank you.